Well, I think that uh, I think that all male chorus did a pretty good job this morning, don't you? <laughs> Our ladies are at Camp Bethel this weekend. Many of them are, and we hope they're having a great time over there, up there. I'm sure it's a little bit cooler up there. So let me ask you a question this morning. What is it that you are becoming? What is it that you are becoming? There was a poet by the name of Ralph Waldo Emerson, and he posed a very interesting statement. He said this. He said, what we are worshiping, we are becoming. Whatever it is that we are devoting our most time to, whatever it is that captures our gaze and our attention the most is the thing which we are becoming. Now, let's just for a moment entertain this idea that this is Emerson's law, that what we are worshiping, we are becoming. Let's, say, let's call that Emerson's law, and let's look how this has played out in the lives of two, two very different men. First, let's consider this man, a guy by the name of Charles Darwin. He's the father of of evolution. And Charles Darwin said he had a mind that was made basically for grinding out laws based on general collections of data. That's how he came up with this theory of evolution that he did. And he said, my chief enjoyment and sole employment throughout life has been scientific work. Then he said that I'm never idle in regard to this. He said it's the only thing that makes life endurable to him was science. So how then did this play out uh, in light of what kind of person he became? He said that up until the age of 30, he really enjoyed poetry. And, and that uh, he said he took intense delight in Shakespeare. But then he said for many years, he found it so intolerably dull that it nauseated him. Then he goes on to say that this was a loss of happiness. And this is how he describes himself. These are his own words that are in his autobiography. He said, I am a withered leaf. Now let's consider another life. A man by the name of Jonathan Edwards. Jonathan Edwards was president of the time, at the time it was Princeton Theological Seminary. This was uh, around the, the time of the founding of the school, 1700s. And uh, he had a very different kind of outlook on life. Whenever Edwards was 19 years old, he said, I am resolved to cast my soul on the Lord Jesus Christ, to trust and confide in Him, to give myself wholly to Him. Now then, what kind of effect did that have on his life? Later in his life, when he reflected on how his object of worship impacted him, he said this. He said, it brought an inexpressible purity, brightness, peacefulness, and he called it a ravishment to the soul. He said, in other words, it made the soul like a field or a garden. Two gifted men, one became a withered leaf, one became a garden. So let me ask you the question again. What is it that you are becoming you see, I believe we're probably caught somewhere lurking between the two. The withered life, the withered leaf rather on the one side, 
and the garden on the other. And what you become has a lot to do with what you're worshiping. It's got everything to do with what you're worshiping. You see, we have an infinite appetite for distraction. And we live in a world of infinite distractions. So many things can catch our gaze. It can be screens. It can be if I only had that relationship, if I could only be in that inner circle of people that I see over there, then my life would have meaning. Then it would have worth. If only that person liked me. If only that person was dependent. If I was only independent of that person. All of these little things, all of these little idols of worship can have a profound impact on what you or I, you and I, are becoming. A withered leaf or a garden. That's the subject I'd like to discuss with you this morning. In light of all of the infinite distractions that we have today, how can we focus and worship God alone? How can we focus and worship God alone? The passage we're going to look at today comes from Judges chapter 17. We'll be in Judges chapter 17 and 18, but I'd like to start out with the beginning of Judges chapter 17. If you would, please stand with me for the reading of God's Word. Judges 17, we'll look at verses uh, 1 through 6 of Judges chapter 17. There was a man of the hill country of Ephraim whose name was Micah. And he said to his mother, The eleven hundred pieces of silver that were taken from you, about which you uttered a curse, and also spoke it in my ears, behold, the silver is with me, I took it. And his mother said, Blessed be my son by the Lord. And he restored the eleven hundred pieces of silver to his mother. And his mother said, I dedicate the silver to the Lord from my hand for my son to make a carved image and a metal image. Now, therefore, I will restore it to you. So when he restored the money to his mother, his mother took 200 pieces of silver and gave it to the silversmith who made it into a carved image and a metal image. And it was in the house of Micah. And the man Micah had a shrine and he made an ephod and household gods and ordained one of his sons who became his priest in those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. You may be seated. Last week, we took a look at the final judge that we find in the book of Judges, Samson. And with all the things that Samson was given, all the graces and all the gifts, the question was raised, well, how's he going to handle this? What's he going to do with it? And we, we put that question to ourselves and things, frankly, didn't go well for Samson. He didn't use the gifts that he was given well. As a matter of fact, his greatest contribution was in his death. We will hear about no more judges in the book of Israel. There will be no more deliverers. The people are doing what is right in their own eyes. There's no sheriff in town. There's no king in Israel. And now we're just going to see a constant downward spiral of these people. They're going to go down the tubes. As a matter of fact, we'll be introduced now to the epilogue, this concluding section of the story uh, in Judges. And we're going to see just how bad things are going to get when there is no king 
and the people have become absolutely godless. We're seeing the impact of what it says there in verse 6. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. So as we work our way down through the passage today, we're going to see first that godless people are going to act out. And then we'll see that godlessness brings loss. We'll see it in three stories. We'll see it in, this, in the life of this man named Micah. By the way, that's not Micah the prophet. This is a different Micah altogether. Then we'll see it in the story of Micah and a priest, and then in a group of people called the Danites. We haven't been introduced to the Danites yet, but you'll, you'll see what life is like for them when they become godless as well. And then we'll look at this question, how do we worship God alone? We'll there look at five uh, five common idols that we struggle with in our hearts. So let's jump into this passage now. And uh, we, we saw there um, in those first six verses the weirdness of what happens when there's godlessness, the, the people acting out. And there's these three stories that I just mentioned that are coming to fruition. Um, Micah, the man in the narrative, admits that he stole 1,100 pieces of silver from his mother. Um, this could be uh, Delilah. Actually, if you look in the previous passage, Delilah received 1,100 pieces of silver for betraying Samson. It could be his mother. We can't be definitive on that. But he admits to stealing this money after he hears his mother cursing about how someone had stolen it. So his mother finds out that it was him who stole it, but then she pronounces blessings on him in verse 2. This is weird, all right? This is just, it's just plain weird. And here's where it gets weirder, because she decides in verse 3, after she receives the money, she said that she'll dedicate the silver to the Lord, and listen to this, from my hand, for my son, to make a carved image and a metal image. Now, how much sense does this make? I'll give you a hint, it doesn't. Uh, they're breaking most all of the Ten Commandments in these first few verses. Cursing, making these false images, stealing. And it's no small deal that she took this, rather their son took this silver to a silversmith. Because there were no Israelite metal workers at that time. In 1 Samuel 13, it talks about this shortage of Israelite metal workers. So it was probably a Philistine metal worker that carved these images. Then let's take a closer look at verse 5. It says, And the man Micah had a shrine, and he made an ephod and household gods, and ordained one of his sons who became his priest. Again, they're breaking all the rules. He had, no right, he had no right to ordain a priest, let alone his, his son, making images of God. And at this point, it's like, well, anything goes. Uh, why not ordain your son as a priest? There's no regard for God. And then in the next section, in verses 7 through 13, again, we're just in a downward spiral here. It turns out there was this wandering Levite priest, an actual priest, who decided he would just up and leave the temple. He'd go out and do his own thing. And this guy, Micah, finds him. And then he hires him to come in and be another priest. 
says he's employing this wandering priest in his house over this little shrine that he's made with these false gods. Uh, then somehow after all this, he comes to this conclusion in verse 13. He says, now I know that the Lord will prosper me because I have a Levite as a priest. You know, honestly, this reminds me of a couple that I met. This was about 20 years ago. It was when I was living in Maryland. And uh, they were engaged at the time. But I'll never forget something that the, the lady in this couple, some information she offered to me. She said, Chad, you know how I knew it was God's will that we get married? She said it was because I got pregnant on the day we got engaged. Not Christians. And honestly, I admire them for getting married. But you see the confusion there. I mean, it was premarital sex is not part of God's plan. So to get pregnant, obviously, was it's not a great sign. Unfortunately, they're divorced now. Um, but that's what I couldn't help but think about as I'm reading this story. He thinks he's done all these things wrong, that somehow God's going to prosper him. He's got this priest as sort of a lucky charm, and everything's just going badly. Um, so, it, it, again, we, we, we keep going here, and um, we're finding out that these, these people are godless. We see it in Micah. And we're going to see it in another group, a group called the, the Danites. Um, the second story emerges in chapter 18 of these, these Danites. And they're really about to show themselves godless as well. This was a tribe, an Israelite tribe called the, the tribe of Dan. And in chapter 18, verse 1, it says, In those days there was no king in Israel, and in those days the tribe of the people of Dan was seeking for itself an inheritance to dwell in. For until then no inheritance among the tribes of Israel had fallen to them. Now, at first glance, it's like, oh, man, these, these poor folks. They're just trying to find a place to live, sort of a wandering bunch of nomads. But see, that's not the case at all. Because when you dig a little deeper, what happened? These guys are just too chicken to go and fight for the land that God had allotted to them. So they're wandering around. They're looking for an easy target. These Amorites had taken the land that they were supposed to have, so... Let's go find somewhere else. And it's important to note here that, again, everything is from human origin. You don't see the Lord speaking anywhere in this chapter. In verse 3, these Danites, they sent spies uh, out into this land. They came upon Micah's house, ironically. They even recognized this young priest that he had hired to come in and be the priest in his house. And then starting at verse 5, it says, and they said to him, inquire of God, please, that we may know whether the journey on which we are setting out will succeed. These five spies are asking this of this priest in Micah's house that he's hired. And the priest said to them, go in peace. The journey on which you go is under the eye of the Lord. This makes no sense. None of it makes any sense. They're totally going off, I don't know what feeling, what they had for breakfast. So now these Danites, they've abandoned their God-allotted territory. They asked this priest that's just, again, Micah's good luck charm. 
to inquire of these idols and images of what, whether or not they're going to prosper. See, this is the way the pagans operated. This is the way the Canaanites would have approached the gods. Should we do this thing? Should we not? Will it prosper? They proceed then to go out. They leave that place. They spy out a place called Laish. Um, Laish was far from the Israelite settlements. It was somewhere they should never have been. And in a situation like that, God told them in Deuteronomy 20, if you go to a place far from the settlements, and there are quiet and unsuspecting people, offer them terms of peace. Don't just go in there and start swinging your swords. But again, God's not really part of the picture right now. In verse 7, it describes these people as peaceful and unsuspecting. So the Danite spies, together they report to their leadership what happens. And then the story gets weirder. Uh, in verses 14 through 20 of chapter 18, 600 of these Danites, they go with the five spies, and they show up on the doorstep of Micah. So just imagine three times, twice the number of people in here right now show up on your doorstep armed for war. And then we get to verses 18 through 20. It says, and when these went into Micah's house and took the carved image, this is what these, these Danites are doing, these five guys that they'd met with originally. They, they go now, they go into Micah's house, they took the carved image, the ephod, the household gods, the metal image. The, the priest said to them, what are you doing? And they said to him, keep quiet, put your hand on your mouth, and come with us and be it to us a father and a priest. Is it better for you to be priest to the house of one man or to be priest to a tribe and clan in Israel. And the priest was glad. He's getting a promotion out of this. He took the ephod and it's like, all right, let's take it all. And the household gods and the carved image and went along with the people. So they've taken false gods. They've got this renegade priest. This was Micah's four higher priests over a shrine that he had there in his house. They go up to this quiet town of Laish, and they just slaughter everybody in there. The men, the women, the children, they burn the city down. So this is a story of paganism. It's a story of brutality. It's people acting like they have no God. By the way, we should never, ever, ever expect non-Christians to act like Christians. Never. We shouldn't be surprised when we see the culture around us spiraling downwards. People are just doing what? They're just doing what's right in their own eyes. See, without God, anything goes. Without God, there is no standard of right and wrong. It's interesting to hear um, people try to describe goodness or what's quote-unquote right outside of any sort of objective belief in an objective God that has determined what is good and what is evil. People are really only limited <clears throat> by their imagination in how evil they can become. That's where we are with these people, with Micah, with these Danites, with this Levite. But then we see the result of the godlessness. You see, when godlessness comes to fruition, it brings nothing but loss. It brings complication. It brings confusion. And this is the result of sin. So what happens to Micah and these Danites? Well, in 
in verses 21 through 27 of chapter 18, uh, we see that Michael loses everything that he had. He'd worked so hard to get this stuff, spent up all the silver. The Danites showed up his house, they took everything. His priest, his shrine. And then look, look, at what he's, look at what Micah says in verse 24. He said, you take my gods that I made and the priest and go away. And what have I have left? Do you see the insanity of the statement? You're taking the things that I made, my gods that I made. Can he hear himself talking? Look at how deranged he's become. He's showing an utter dependency on false gods that he fully admits were made by his own hand. Then the Danites, they destroy this quiet, unsuspecting people of Laish. They burn down the village. And then look at verses 30 and 31 of chapter 18. It says, And the people of Dan set up the carved image for themselves. And Jonathan, the son of Gershom, son of Moses, they're, they're, they're dragging in the family of Moses in this, and his sons were priests to the tribe of the Danites until the day of the captivity of the land. Ultimately, the Assyrians will come into this northern territory, and they're going to wipe everything out. So they set up Micah's carved image that he made as long as the house of God was at Shiloh. They set up a false temple, practicing this worship to these gods. And what's happened here? See, this, this conquest of this tribe of Dan was not a conquest for Israel. This was a Canaanite conquest of a town. This was the Canaanites winning. This was a win for the very people that God said, you need to wipe out. But see, this is the fruit of godlessness. This is what happened when sin enters in. Micah's idols are set up. So then, let's put the question to ourselves. I mean, it's easy to go through the story and see all these little images that are just sort of taking over, the, the metal image, the silver image. And then the question comes to us, well, then how do we worship God alone? Because, see, I could probably step into your houses, and I'm guessing um, I'm not going to find any little images, right? I'm not going to find any little silver things that you're putting in a shrine and, and you're worshiping. However, I think the idols of the heart that you and I are dealing with are much more subtle than that. And I think that they're much easier for us to kind of skirt over or just call normal or say, well, it's just part of the human experience. And then it's, it makes it really difficult to sort of find and diagnose, well, where are these little subtle idols that may have wormed their way into my heart? There's a great book by Tim Keller called Counterfeit Gods. And in that book, he offers about 20 questions to diagnose whether or not I have any idols in my heart. And in that book, he puts us to the question. He said, how do we worship God alone? Well, we've got to identify these, these false idols. Okay, well, then how do we identify these false idols? Well, this is what you have to ask yourself. If there's something in your life to which you put to the question that my life only has meaning or I only have worth if I have this thing, uh, then, then it has become an idol. And I think there's five very common idols that we are very, very 
susceptible to it. I want to go through those, those five. And, uh, and the first one um, is this idol that has to do with uh, experiences of pleasure. As a matter of fact, you could say that my life only has meaning or I only have worth if I have this kind of quality of life or experiences of pleasure. Now, if that's the truth, then we have this idol of comfort that we're dealing with. Now, I'm not talking about those things we need to survive, right? I'm not talking about we've got to have food. We've got to have clothes. Uh, we've got to have shelter. But what happens if those things become our meaning in life? You know, for those of us that grew up in affluence, uh, and not everyone did, I grew up in a middle, middle-class home in Dunbar, West Virginia. Uh, but see, I, I enjoyed a lot of things. I mean, we went to the beach every year. We went down to Myrtle, sometimes Daytona, both known as the redneck Rivieras of the East Coast. <laughs> uh, and we enjoyed those things. I got to go to a private school. But see, what happens if I were to say, if I can't have those things, I'm not sure life is worth living. Such that I'm willing to sacrifice other good things in order to have these. See, if that's the case, then I've sort of turned this comfort thing, I've turned this comfort thing into an idol. Now, that's not a bad thing in and of itself. I'm not saying that you should never go on a vacation, but to what degree do you have to have it? See, that's what we have to ask ourselves. So first is this idol of comfort. I have to have these experiences in life or else I'm a nobody. Then secondly, um, if you have to be recognized for accomplishments or excelling at work, you may have turned achievement into an idol. Um, now, I, I, I got to mention here, this doesn't mean that you can't enjoy being recognized for a job well done uh, or being honored in something. But the, but but if you have to be honest with yourself and say, if I don't get that recognition, I'm not sure I've got as much value as that guy over there who, who did get that recognition. This can happen in many different arenas. Uh, it can happen in school. If you, you've, got to, you've got to have that grade or else it's just going to ruin you. It can happen in athletics. If you don't get that trophy, then I'm just not sure. See, if that's the case, if you... If it's gone to that degree into your heart, achievement may have become an idol. Or if you have to have power or influence over others, if you need power, and often it's over people that are closest to you, um, it could be siblings, it could be your adult children. And you're willing to break through uh, people's boundaries in order to have that power over them, to bully them, then you may have made power an idol. <clears throat> or, what if you have to have a certain kind of look or body image? Your appearance has to be uh, such uh, that it makes an impression on people. Now, again, it's good to be healthy. Believe me, I could probably improve my body image. But it's when you have to have that thing. Uh, and, and we've got a culture right now that is screaming at us that we have to look a certain way. And I think this is particularly difficult on young women. That they have to look a certain way, and if that guy likes them, then they've got worth. 
then they've got value. I remember struggling with this so much, more so when I was younger. Guys, we don't have to lift a certain amount of weight to have worth and value. You don't have to look a certain way to have worth and value. But see, and, and if you feel that way, then your image may have become an idol. And then finally, and this is a very interesting one, life only has meaning or I only have worth if a particular social grouping or professional grouping or other group lets me into it. This is called the inner ring. And sometimes this may be fueling the other ones. If I could just look this way, get these grades, perform this way, <clears throat> then I'll be able to be a part of that social circle over there. And it can happen in just about any place. It happens in the workplace. It happens in school. If I could be like this, then I could be a part of that clique over there. The cool kids, the good-looking kids, the smart kids, whatever. And you know, probably worst of all, this can happen in churches. Frankly, you may be sitting here this morning thinking, man, I'd like to be part of that, that circle of people. If only I had that education. If only I had that socioeconomic status. See, a church can never, ever operate that way. It is unlike the rest of the world. Because, you see, if we operated that way, if we had these inner rings that people had to have a certain status to be part of, guess what? We'd have to go out there to the sign near Bighorn and we'd have to take the word church off of it. Because then we're no longer a church. This inner ring thing, C.S. Lewis talked about this quite a bit, actually. There was a, I've got a quote here from the book, The Abolition of Man. This is what he says about the danger of the inner ring. He says, as long as you are governed by that desire, you will never get what you want. You are trying to peel an onion. If you succeed, there will be nothing left until you conquer the fear of being an outsider, an outsider you will remain. Because see, what happens when you get inside the inner ring? Well, there's, a, there's another ring. And there's another ring. And you never really get any satisfaction out of getting inside that place. So be careful, beware of these, these inner rings. As a matter of fact, it's interesting, the, the guy that founded the C.S. Lewis Institute, a guy named Jim Houston, he was asked to move to Washington, D.C. to set up the C.S. Lewis Institute there, and he refused to do it, he said, on the grounds that he could not withstand the spiritual temptations of heading up a ministry in such a center of political power. I thought that was just Poetic. See, a church has got to be a place where everybody makes connections, without exception. So, so let's say we can identify our idol. Let's say that we see it, we see our gaze has moved to something else. Well, then what? How do we destroy that idol? There's really only one way to do it, and it is by fixing your gaze on Christ. Now, what does that mean? And I love the way, I love the way Tim Keller says this. He says, Jesus must become more beautiful to your imagination and more attractive to your heart than your idols. That is what will replace your counterfeit God. That's the only way you'll replace the counterfeit gods. You see, these counterfeit gods are telling you messages. 
Here's what's going to give you value. Here's what's going to give you worth. And that drowns out the voice of Christ. It's saying, you are dearly loved. You are valuable. I'm giving you purpose. And when that becomes more beautiful to you, then all those other millions and infinite distractions out there, then, then and only then, will we be able to replace those idols that we have in our hearts. So putting this all together, worship God alone by finding Him most attractive. Worship God alone by finding Him most attractive. You know, I came across this story of a, of a young man who was, he was going to be um, arranged to marriage. Uh, he, was, he was going to be in, a, in an arranged marriage. And he was very nervous about this. This isn't really practiced in American culture so much, but in other cultures, they commonly, parents will arrange marriages. So he was about to marry a woman he had never seen, and he's waiting on her uh, in the airport. He's got flowers in his hand, and he's absolutely terrified to the point of depression. And he's thinking, I've got no idea what she's like. I, I don't know what she looks like. He said, this is going to be the worst thing that's ever happened to me. But he's dutifully standing there in the airport with the flowers in his hands. And then she steps off the plane. And wow, she was beautiful. And this changed everything. Because now he's not standing there out of duty. Now he's standing there out of joy. Because he's seen the beauty of the one that he's going to marry. See, this is when we fix our gaze on Christ. What may have become sort of a, a dutiful activity, wherever that may be, serving God without joy, as we start to see God as he really is, what was duty can turn into joy. As we gaze on his beauty, as we take into our hearts the things that he has said about us, about who we are, then, and only then, can we overcome these idols that we may have set up. Please pray with me. Lord, it is a privilege to be your adopted sons and daughters. Lord, it's so easy for us to be completely distracted by all the, the things in life that we we hang heavy weights on, Lord, that we think are so important. Lord, I pray that we would confess right now any idols that we may have that have seeped their way in, that have drilled their way, Lord, down into our hearts so that we're seeking these things more than we are seeking you. God, give us the wisdom to see and give us the courage to see the beauty in you as more profound than anything that this world has to offer. And we ask it all in the name of Jesus Christ, who is most beautiful. Amen.